to this and uh, they always have a great time and I'm also really thankful for all of our leaders who are involved month in and month out in different roles of leadership with that and couldn't do, of course, what we do without them. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Judges chapter 3. We are working our way through a sermon series in the book of Judges by looking at the stories of the different judges. And so as you are uh, getting prepared for that this morning, you can turn to Judges chapter 3. I want to first talk about uh, something that I've had quite a bit of experience with in my lifetime. One of God's stranger creations, one of, one of, the, uh, one of the things that only the Lord knew what he was doing when he made, and of course I'm talking about junior high boys, uh, that only, only the Lord, I think, understands the mind of a 13, 14-year-old boy. And in my years in youth ministry, I had a lot of experience working alongside uh, you know, th- this age of, of boy. But now the, the, you know, God's humor is being shown in that we have a 12-year-old in our home, and he will be 13. Uh, and we've got a few months still, but it's coming, right? We're, we're racing headlong into having a uh, a teenager in our house, and so this is, God's really gonna, he's gonna test our mettle on this, I'm sure, but especially because, you know, in years of student ministry, I spoke into the life of many students and was involved with their families, of course, but it's all been theory up to this point, right? Now we're living it ourselves, and we get to prove whether it was, uh, whether it works or not, I guess, in, in the Butler house, but, you know, in thinking about, uh, in thinking about that, I bring that up for this reason. Because I remember lots of conversations with middle school boys over Bible passages that would make most deacons blush, you know? That they would want to know about, you know, oh, I've got a question about something in the Bible. I'm sure you do, right? What, what's your question about? And they'd take you to some text in Leviticus or Ezekiel or Judges, right? And they would want to, you know, and of course it's some Song of Solomon. If you've read any of those parts of the Bible, you of course know exactly what I'm talking about. And uh, that's where their questions would always come from, of course. But this passage this morning that we're going to study is a passage that, uh, quite honestly, belongs on the short list of, uh, of stories that uh, middle school boys would love. And so I- I'll say from the beginning, from the outset this morning, that there are some things about this passage that, uh, that are, uh, uh, they're not your normal Sunday school lesson, we'll just say it that way, right? But here's the thing about this, and this is, this is one of the things that we can appreciate about the Bible, is that if the, if the, the writers of, of Scripture, if the writers of the Bible were wanting to give us something that couldn't be scrutinized, that was indefensible in the sense that no one was ever going to criticize it, there are a lot of things that they would take out, a lot of teachings, a lot of hard sayings, a lot of hard truths. Certainly, this is a story that no one would knowingly, well, knowingly they did, but knowing would would choose to invent something like this and stick it in Scripture, right, unless they were just trying to stir the pot. And, and so the reason I bring that up is because along the way in, in defense of Scripture, one of the things that you learn is that one of many, many defenses for the truth of Scripture is the fact that there are passages like this in the Bible that have not been edited out over time, that there are passages like this that still are found in the Scripture, and the reason why these passages are in the Scripture, of course, is because they actually did happen. These are actual historical events, and rather than glossing these, and that's the, 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 the you know, redacting them, editing them, if you will, rather than taking these out, 
Instead, these have been preserved in Scripture for us. And when we study these, of course, it's natural that we get a little chuckle out of it. But also, it's important that we look and say, well, why did God give us this story? Why were these things included with Scripture? What lessons is the Lord wanting to teach us that junior high boys seem to get, but the rest of us may miss sometimes? And so this passage this morning, uh, you'll, as we start to read this, of course, you'll, you'll immediately identify with what it is that I'm talking about. The story of Ehud in Judges chapter 3, verse 12, begins like this. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of the Palms. That's Jerusalem. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, Silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. And then Ehud went, in, went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the door of the roof chamber was locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. You see now why junior high boys love this. And they waited till they were embarrassed, but when still he did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there their Lord lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped into Syrah. When he arrived... He sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the, seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, it says, the son of Anath, who killed about 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. And so what we find in this passage, in this story, is that again, Israel has fallen into this pattern, this habitual pattern of sorts, a downward spiral, we've even called it, of of the roller coaster of up and down. They would serve the Lord for a season and things would go well and then there would be a period where they would turn their hearts against the Lord. We even saw last week that it said that they had forgotten the Lord. And so in this passage as we study this pattern, this up and down pattern that Israel was on, we find that in the midst of all of this, God is again 
faithful. So in your notes this morning, in, in your sermon notes on the back side of your worship guide, there are some blanks. And what I want to do is I want to identify certain key things, key, key movements, if you will, in this passage as we work through the story. And then at the bottom you see there are some applications that I want to make that take this from just our understanding of an Old Testament story, but then ask this, this critical question, this important question of what does this teach us and, and how do we learn from a story like this. Uh, and, and so with that, the first thing I want us to see th- this morning in this is punishment, right? So the first blank that you have there in your notes, the first point is this, it's punishment. So we find that God, again, raises up a foreign army to conquer Israel and bring them into oppression as a, as a result of their idolatry and their waywardness in their relationship with the Lord. And so because Israel turned their hearts against God and they did, it says, what was evil in the sight of the Lord, meaning that they worshipped these false gods, the Baals, the Asherah, because they, because they committed these acts of idolatry and all of the sin that would have gone with these, these, the, these practices of pagan worship, God raised up Eglon, the king of Moab, who joined with the Ammonites and the Amalekites. Now, these are all peoples that live to the east of Israel, on the east side of the Jordan River. So they live in the, in the land, in the territory, where the Israelites would have lived as they wandered in the wilderness. So what, what that means, what you need to hear when you, when you see that, is that Israel has history with the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Amalekites, that there's, there's, there's deep history here of Israel and their struggle and their strife against the Moabites. And it actually even goes back much further than just the period when they were wandering in the wilderness. But there, there's a, a longstanding history, and God allows this longstanding rival to, ha- to rise up, basically, and have power and authority over his people Israel in order that he might draw them back, in order that through the oppression that they experienced, he might might crush them, he might punish them in such a way that they would become broken over their sin, broken over their situation, and what led them to this place initially and might turn their hearts back to God. Because as you remember, in this period of time, there was no king who ruled over Israel, God was their king, the Lord was their leader, and Israel looked at all of the other armies and all the other nations around them who had a man who served as king, and they wanted that, but the Lord said instead, no, I want you to serve me. I want to be your God. I want to be your leader. And so as they, as they wonder as though they had no leader, though in fact, obviously God was their leader, they sinned against him, and the Lord punishes them by raising up the Moabites. And next in this, we see that after 18 years of this, essentially after, uh, after a, uh, nearly a generation of this goes by, Israel turned their hearts to the Lord. They cry out to God, it says in verse 15. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. So again we see God listens to the cries of his people, and as he listens to their cries, he sends someone to deliver them. Of course, in this situation, someone is Ehud. But here is how Ehud is different from the other judges. Here is how Ehud is different from the others that the Lord raised up. Notice that in the story that we studied of Othniel last week, and, in, and you'll notice as we study the other stories of the judges, it talks about how the Lord was with, or the Spirit of the Lord was with 
these judges. Notice that it doesn't say that the Spirit of the Lord was with Ehud. Now, I believe that God was leading Ehud. And because this tells us, this passage tells us that the Lord, that the Lord uh, essentially raised him up as the deliverer. I believe God was the one orchestrating this, and God was the one directing and leading Ehud through all of this. But what does that mean, that it doesn't say that the Spirit of the Lord was with Ehud? I think, we're, I think we have to read between the lines, essentially, here, but I think we can see in this that Ehud was not necessarily the guy that you would have picked to be the leader of Israel. Certainly, he's not the guy that you would think, yes, this is going to be the spiritual leader, the judge who would draw God's people back to him. Ehud was just a guy. And in fact, the fact that he was left-handed kind of hints at a few things. First of all, to be left-handed was considered actually more of a, uh, more of a disability than anything. And the fact that he was left-handed would have meant that he that he would have been distrusted to a degree because in order to be left-handed, it just it sort of, again, if you're reading between the lines in history, kind of points to a certain cunning that maybe he has, a certain deceptiveness that, that Ehud would have likely had, part of his character, right? Maybe in some ways similar to what we would think of Jacob, who was the deceiver, right? And so this is the man that God raises up. And we read in this passage that he fashioned for himself a sword with two edges. Now, that, is, that shows us his preparation, okay? And so that's the next of, of our notes here, the next point that I, I want us to see. We saw first punishment as God allows his people to be oppressed. We see next preparation on the part of Ehud, the man that God raises up. And he was not the most likely of characters, and nonetheless, he was the one that God was preparing to use to deliver his people from the Moabites. And so Ehud fashions this sword about a cubit in length. Uh, and so that would have been about, about 18 inches, about a foot and a half long, this sword was. And that he strapped the, thord, the sword under his clothes on his right thigh. Again, so he's concealing this weapon as he goes to take tribute to the king of the Moabites, to King Eglon. Now, as a part of, as a part of their, their uh, if, if you will, their taxation, that's maybe the best way that we can think of it, as, as a part of the, their, their being conquered by the Moabites, yearly the Israelites would have to pay a, a, a tax, a tribute is what the word that is used here, and essentially it was a tax. And basically what they were doing is they were paying to keep the king from conquering them and, and uh, doing even worse than what the, the Moabites had done when they first conquered Israel. And so uh, Benjamites would have uh, been a part of the group taking this tribute because they would have gathered together different men from each of the tribes to deliver this tribute. And so Ehud is essentially representing his tribe, the Benjamites, and he's representing his his tribe, along with the other tribes, as they take this tribute to Eglon. And as the story goes, Ehud had prepared this sword. But here's what's interesting. He doesn't initially, he doesn't initially do anything when they pay the tribute. Notice, he doesn't rush in and try to seize the king. Now, we don't know the exact circumstances. Was it, in fact, that Ehud was 
going with the intent of assassinating the king? Was he looking for the right moment? Was, was he being led by the Lord and he just wasn't sure and he was just kind of waiting for things to play out? And, and the best that we can say really in all of that is we don't know exactly because the story doesn't give us those details. But in any manner, we know this, that after they had delivered the tribute, when they were going home, on their way home, at the point when they arrived at Gilgal, Ehud turns back. He sent the others on. You guys continue on without me. And at Gilgal, he turned back. Now, here's why that's significant. Here's what's significant about Gilgal. Gilgal was a significant location for a couple of different reasons. In Joshua chapter 4, you read that as Israel crossed over the Jordan into the promised land, something that they had been waiting for years to do, thus really ultimately fulfilling that promise of God when he led them out of exile in the Exodus, out of Egypt, back into the promised land, the land of their fathers. And so as this happens in Joshua chapter 4, you see that while the waters were still parted, that Joshua leads the men from each tribe to go and collect 12 stones from the river. And they collect these 12 stones and they erect an altar at Gilgal. And there they offered sacrifice and they worshiped the Lord at Gilgal. And, And Joshua said, from now on, when you see this monument, this altar that we have constructed, let it be a sign, let it be a, a reminder to you and your sons and to future generations of how God has provided for us, how God led us through and delivered us, giving us the land that he had promised us. Gilgal was a significant place, and not only that, It was also at Gilgal, after they had crossed over, that the men of Israel were circumcised, thus renewing the covenant. And so an entire generation of men who had never, at least to that point in their lives, had not borne this this sign of the covenant promise between Israel and God, received the sign of the covenant at Gilgal, thus renewing their commitment and their covenant with God. Gilgal was a very special and a sacred place to the Israelites. And yet, what does Ehud see as he passes by Gilgal? He sees this this idolatrous worship taking place. He sees these idols that have been constructed alongside the the, the altar at Gilgal and alongside these places where, where once Israel had worshiped God and now they're worshiping these false idols. And you can imagine that at that point, Ehud made the determination that he was going to, he was going to do these things that, that, of course, then he does. Now, was it his plan all along? We don't know. Was it that his plan was initially to assassinate Eglon and he chickened out, if you will, and then when he got to Gilgal, he saw all of this happen? Was it that he was just he was just waiting, and, and he wasn't sure, and when he, when he passed by Gilgal, his blood ran red, and he had had enough. I, I, we don't know for sure. I've read different, different, uh, different accounts by different, uh, different you know, historians or biblical scholars pointing to each of these things, but the, the truth is that we can't say for sure because the story just doesn't give us that level of detail, but for whatever reason, as he passes by Gilgal, he determines in his heart to go back and to end things to end this oppression if God would, would give Eglon into his hand. And, and so he, he turns back. And then third, we see this. We see providence. We see providence at work. God's providence 
was at work to bring about his ultimate plan. So God allowed his people to be punished. God raised up Ehud as a deliverer. Ehud prepared himself to be used by God. He had fashioned the sword. He had hidden the sword. He he was prepared to be used by God. And then we see now God's providence at work, that God was at work to bring about his ultimate plan. And, And so we might define God's providence as this, that God working behind the scenes. Because in this story, there are several things that happen next that only God could have brought about. With the detail that is given to us, there's no way that Ehud could have planned these certain turn of events. And so when we read this story, we read that Ehud goes back and he asks for a private audience with Eglon. Now normally, that's not the sort of thing that would happen. Normally, Eglon wouldn't hear Ehud in a situation like this. Not only would he not hear him, but oftentimes, anyone that requested a private audience with the king was immediately thought to be someone who was out to assassinate or harm the king, and so they would either be imprisoned or even oftentimes, they would just be dealt with and punished by death. You, you didn't do this sort of thing in ancient culture. And so Ehud asks for a private audience with the king. Not only that, Eglon, for reasons that we can't explain other than just God's providence at work, Eglon grants him this private audience. Not only does he grant him this private audience to share this word from the Lord, a God that Eglon did not worship, did not honor, but then also Eglon dismisses all of his guard. He sends everybody else out so that he and Ehud would have been alone. Now, there's no way that Ehud could have planned for that sort of thing, right? That's that's not normal practice. That that essentially, as if someone had gone to the president, our president, and said, I'd like a private word with you. And the president says to this perfect stranger, uh, okay, and then dismisses all of his secret service, takes them into the Oval Office, shuts the doors, and says, what is it? Right? That, that kind of thing just doesn't happen. Strangers aren't given an audience with a king in this kind of way. And yet, because of God's providence, because of God's work behind the scenes, that's exactly what happens. And as Ehud came close to Eglon, he took the sword that they had not discovered on his person to this point. Now, the fact that it was concealed on his right thigh is abnormal because normally a man would have been right-handed. Again, I've told you that being left-handed was considered a disability. And so a right-handed man would have held his sword, carried his sword on his left side, on his left thigh, so that he could easily draw it in, in the moment when, when he needed it, right? But Ehud, being a left-handed man, he concealed the sword on his right thigh. It had gone undetected. But again, we see God's providence even in that. And He draws the sword that he's fashioned and sticks it into Eglon to the point that he disembowels him. It says that it came out the backside and the dung came out, is what it says in verse 22. I mean, pretty frankly, it was gross, right? I mean, but the bottom line is, uh, you could say Ehud killed him good. I mean, he took care of him, right? And so in all of this, we see God's, we see God's hand, and that's the point, Okay in relating the story and and in even the level of detail and everything that's included here is to show that God was at work in all of this to accomplish his purpose. It's God's providence at work that was gonna rescue his people, deliver his people. And finally, uh, not finally, but next I should say, we see this, God's protection. So what happens next? Ehud 
leaves undetected, closes the door, locks the door when Eglon's men return because of the smell, because of how Eglon was disemboweled as Ehud essentially killed him, assassinated him, because of the smell, the men assumed that he was relieving himself, and they waited until the point where they were embarrassed, until the point that it just seemed like this has gone on too long, right? Something must be wrong. How long would that be? I don't know, right? And I don't even know that I really want to guess, but long enough, right? Long enough for Ehud to have escaped and made it all the way back across into Israel's lines and to be able to rally together the men of Israel and lead them to surround the Moabites before they could cross over back into Moab on the east side of the Jordan. They cut them off at the fords. That would have been the place where they would have, they would have uh, passed over or crossed over the Jordan. And, and it was there that they, that they conquered them and killed all of these mighty men. And so what do we see in all of that? We see God's protection. What is it that Ehud says to Israel as he sounds the trumpet to the men in the hill country? He says that follow after me for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. Ehud recognizes that God has done this. I have no idea why this worked, but it worked and God has given them into our hand. Let's go, right? That's what he's saying essentially. And so Israel charges after. They were ready in a moment and it was then that God delivered the Moabites into their hand. But we see God's protection through all of this. God gave Israel's enemies into their hands, thus delivering his people, thus protecting them as they went into battle. And then finally, the result of all this we see is peace. Peace. Now, it's interesting that in such a violent and um, we would even say maybe gory story that the end result is peace, and yet that's exactly what happens, right? Because at the end of this, we read that there, were, there was 80 years of rest in the land, that Israel had peace at the final result of all of this. But in order for Israel to have peace, in order for Israel to know this peace, they had to first go to war, right? First, they had to go to war against their their enemies, the, the Moabites were, were their enemies, their long-standing rivals. But really, even more so than that, they had to go to war against their sin. Because the Moabites represented for Israel their, their sinfulness, both in that they were, they were an oppressed people, that God had allowed the Moabites to conquer them, which Israelites would have known was a result of their sinfulness, their wickedness, but also just in the fact that that. In order for God to bring them together as a people, that they would be able to raise up an army in an instant, it was just so clear that God had done this. And in order for them to be clear about what God had done and and really give thanks where thanks was due in all of this, it pointed out to them how far they had strayed from God's plan and the covenant that they had with him. And so it was a reminder of their sin. And so in order for them to really know peace, they had to go to war both against their enemies and and ultimately their sin. So in this story, we find that God delivers his people because God's plan was to be faithful to them if they would turn their hearts. And so as the people cried out, God raised up Ehud. But what do we learn for us? What lessons can we learn 
for our lives as we, as we look in this story. The few things that I want to point us to, the first one is this, is that God often works through people that we would least expect. In this story, when you, when you look at the details of who Ehud was, when you look at the details of his character and, and even things like the fact that he was left-handed, so in a sense he was considered disabled. He, he wasn't the guy that you would think the Lord would raise up. The fact that it doesn't tell us that the Spirit of the Lord was on him. There was no outward visible signs that this man was marked by God's hand, that he was the leader that God was providing. And, and yet in all of this, God uses Ehud. Because the truth of the matter is, God often uses people that we don't expect, right? Study the Scripture and look time and again at the list of people in the Bible Think of, think of just in this point in time, think of the, the history of men in, in, Israel's, uh, in, in Israel's history up to this point. Think of a man like Jonah that God used. Though, though God spared his people, spared, uh, preserved a remnant through Jonah, Jonah was a man that sinned greatly in the eyes of the Lord, and yet God used him. Consider a man like Abraham, who was deceptive, who was a liar, and yet it was through Abraham that God established his covenant with his people. Consider a man like Moses, a man who, uh, who was a murderer, a man who had a, a speech problem, a man who was not confident, a man who had run away and for years had hidden out, and yet God raised him up to renew his covenant and lead his people. Consider a man like, consider a man like Jacob, a, a deceiver, Someone who was a liar, who was deceptor, a swindler of sorts, and yet it was through him that God established a nation. And on and on, we can look throughout the story of the Bible. God often works through people that we don't expect. But not only do we see that, we see this, that God often works in ways that we least expect. I believe as I read this story that there are circumstances and things at work here that Ehud could not have planned for, that it was God's providence and God's provision that delivered ultimately Eglon into the hands of Israel and the army of the Moabites into the hand of the armies of Israel. God is at work here in ways that were unexpected, but that's often the way that God works, isn't it? We've all heard someone say something like, well, the Lord works in mysterious ways, and, and, and mysterious perhaps, unexpected for sure, right? That God works oftentimes in ways that we don't expect. Someone asked me a question just a, a few days ago, you know, a, a, a question that went something like this, you know, uh, if, if, uh, if God, well, back up and just I'll just say it like so they said if someone went and gambled a bunch of money would and, and they won the winnings and then they tithed that to the church would God bless that that was the question right and I often get asked questions like that right I mean uh, pastor stumper kind of questions right what's he going to say what's what's he going to say about this and this was my answer uh to that question I said well you know the Lord uh the Lord's pretty good at blessing our messes isn't he uh and would God work if someone gambled and won a bunch of money and, and I don't know. I, I don't even really care to chase that rabbit because uh, unless someone's got some winnings, they want to turn the offering plate today. <laughs> In which case, we'll consider that question. No, but seriously, uh, sometimes we can raise questions for the sake of raising questions, but this I know to be true. In my life and in the lives of others, I've seen it time and again that God works 
through our messes to bring good out of bad circumstances, doesn't he? And so what we see in this story, in this situation, is that God often works in ways that we least expect it. God will work in the chaos of your life to bring you to a place where you're ready for his providence. He will work through the messiness of your life to bring you to a place where he has your attention and he can do a great work in your life that that may blow your mind and amaze you because that's the way that God works in our lives. And so finally we see this. No matter how impossible it may seem, God can use you. No matter what you've done in your past, no matter what you've been through, no matter what mistakes you've made, no matter what things you might have done wrong, no matter what circumstances you might have lived through or what situations you might have come out of, I can promise you this. God can use you if you will make yourself available to him. And that's the story that we learn in the life of Ehud. God worked through someone that we wouldn't have expected in circumstances that we couldn't have made up if we tried, right? To bring about the deliverance of his people because God works in ways that we don't often expect through people that we don't often expect. And no matter how impossible, God can use you. So this morning, if you're here, and and you're hearing me say this, of course, that's everyone in the room, right? I've just included us all then God's message for you this morning is this. Whatever lies behind you, whatever lies in your past, does not have to define your future. If you will surrender yourself to God, God can use you. So this morning, the question is, will you surrender yourself to him? Will you allow God to work in your life? Will you give him control? For some, that means you need to arrive at that place where by faith you surrender your heart and your life to Jesus, where you trust in his promise, where you make him Lord and Savior of your life, believing in him, trusting in his goodness, surrendering your life to him. For some, that means that you need to come back to that place. You need to come back to the call that God has placed on you. You need to stop running. You need to stop living in the shame of the things that you've done wrong or living in that place where you feel defeated because you've made some bad mistakes and realize that it doesn't matter what you've done. God's power to forgive is greater and that if you will surrender yourself to him, God can use you. So as we prepare for a time of invitation in a moment when we stand to sing that song together our altars will be open we invite you to come and pray here this morning if you choose to do that our staff will be here at the front and we'll be ready to receive you if if you want to surrender your life to christ today if you want to come back if today is the day that you stop running and you come back we'll be ready to pray with you and receive you this morning but i would challenge every one of us to look inward and ask this question How does God want to use me? Because I promise you, if God can use Ehud, if God can use the other list of characters in the Bible that that you and I wouldn't have picked, that we wouldn't have chosen, right? Certainly God can work through you. Would you bow your head and close your eyes this morning? As you do that, I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. But I would invite you, as I pray publicly out loud for us, I would invite you to pray 
a prayer privately where you just say, God, how, how do you want to use me? Lord, I pray this morning that you would speak to our hearts and, God, that you would draw us to trust you by faith, that you would draw us to surrender ourselves, control of our lives even to you, that you would use us for your kingdom and for your glory. God, we confess that we don't deserve it to a man. None of us in the room deserve to be used by you. None of us are worthy of that. None of us uh, could say, well, God ought to use me. And yet, Lord, in your grace and your providence, you do use us. So I pray that you would speak that vision into our hearts now. Lord, raise us up the way that you raised up Ehud, that we would trust you, that we would follow you, and ultimately that we would surrender to you. We pray this now in your name. So as we stand together to sing this song, our altars are open. We invite you to come now as God leads you. No matter how impossible it may seem, God can use you. Will you let him? Thank you.